You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. Good morning, New City. My name... Sorry, thanks. (laughs) My name is Noelle Garan. I lead our Next City Village, and I'm going to read our scripture this morning. It's from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, if you would like to find it. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 555. This section is titled, Fear God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one that you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Noel. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would fill this church with a holy reverence for you. May we take the worship of our God, the one true and living God, with the utmost seriousness. Today, as we dig into your word, God, I pray that we would understand it rightly and that it would take root in our hearts And, Father, that we would see you for who you truly are, a loving, forgiving, holy Father, and that would draw our hearts into a holy, good fear for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So far, we've been making our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. We've journeyed with the preacher, Uh, this is most likely King Solomon. He's gone into various paths of life. He's searching for what we might call ultimate meaning. So Solomon, throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, has explored such themes like wisdom, riches, worldly possessions, even physical pleasure. 
He tells us he's given himself to each one of these things fully. He's just pursued them with all of his might. You, you might remember he was king of Israel. At the time, the richest king in the known world. He had the resources to pursue whatever he wanted. And while these pursuits may have granted him a fleeting sense of fulfillment, all of them have come up empty. We've seen this over and over throughout Ecclesiastes. They promise much, but deliver very little. They don't last. They fade away. Yes, they have value. Yes, they are gifts from God to be enjoyed, but they make terrible gods. And so it seems that maybe today, maybe today, things are about to change because Solomon turns his attention to the topic of public worship of the people of God. It's as if Solomon is saying, okay, so wisdom doesn't do it. Riches doesn't do it. I'm the king of Israel with all the power and, and, and all the prestige, but even that doesn't satisfy my, the longings of my heart. So maybe the answer really is religion. So that's what Solomon describes to us in chapter five. But what we're going to see is that religious duties... Religious practice can become just as empty, just as vain when it is stripped from a genuine fear of the Lord. You see, when God is not at the center of all that we do, everything we do loses its proper significance. In the solar system of your life, all of the things, all of the hats, all of the events, all of the places you go and the people you know, if God is not the sun at the center of all of those things, then something else is. And all of those things spin out of control. They lose their significance. They fly into oblivion. But when God is the sun, everything finds its proper orbit even our public worship. As church, let me be really honest with you today. We are in danger of becoming what Solomon describes in these verses. Many of us, myself included. Maybe we've been working our way through this book and you haven't really been able to connect much, right? Maybe you've grown up in church. You've always kind of been the good church kid. I can identify with that. Maybe you haven't given yourself over to the pursuit of knowledge or the pursuit of riches or pleasure to the degree that Solomon has. But friends, if you've grown up in church like I have, if you've attended religious services week in and week out for years, then your soul just might be in danger today. Not because you failed to perform your religious worship, but because you have forgotten the one you are here to worship. Perhaps we aren't taking the worship of God seriously. If this was true in ancient Israel 3,000 years ago, how much more true is it for us today? We live in a day, don't we, of triviality, of comfort, of ease, of entertainment. We don't like to think deeply about things like corporate gatherings or the presence of God in his, among his people or what God actually expects from us when we gather together. A lot of times we think it doesn't really matter, right? That's Old Testament stuff, right? God cared about that back then, but today it's come as you are. 
See, things have changed now, and God doesn't really care much about what we do, so we might think. This, according to Solomon, is foolishness. He uses the word fool to describe the one who enters into the worship of God without a true fear of God three times. To enter the temple, the place of God's dwelling, to perform some religious exercises, to speak some empty phrases that we don't really mean, and to make vain promises that we don't intend to keep will inevitably lead the fool to the same conclusion we've already seen. Vanity, vanity. All is vanity. We are wasting our time, wasting our breath. But here's the key, and here's the point for today. But religious practice, when paired with a genuine fear of God, is pleasing to Him and transforms our lives. Religious practice, when paired with a genuine fear of God, so you have the form, the the, the practice, and the substance, the form and the meaning, paired together with a genuine fear of God, is pleasing to him and transforms our lives. We're going to examine three characteristics of foolish religion and one characteristic of genuine religion. Here we go. The fool doesn't guard his steps. That's number one. Number one, the fool doesn't guard his steps. Look in verse one. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. All right, now let me be clear about something up front. I'm not saying this building that we're in is, the, is equal to the Old Testament temple, okay? I want to make that very clear. Solomon's talking about the Old Testament temple here, the temple that he built. That's not what I'm saying this church building is. It is true that God no longer dwells in a temple made by hands that has changed, but God does still dwell in a temple, friends. Listen to what Ephesians 2 says. Ephesians 2, in describing the new people of God, says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So church, when we gather together today, like like we are, or when we meet in our houses for village, or when a few are gathered at Starbucks or wherever, the Lord promises that he is dwelling in us and with us. That's the promise of the New Testament. We don't have to go to the temple because when two or three are gathered, God is with us. We are the temple. So yes, God does not manifest his presence in a physical structure, but that's because he's chosen to make his home in the hearts of his people, in us. So when we gather, he promises to be at work in us, building and shaping us according to his spirit. So meeting together, even though it looks different today than it did 3,000 years ago, it is still necessary and vital to the life of every believer. So these instructions that Solomon gives, or these observations that he makes, are just as applicable to us as they were to the Old Testament people of God. So, back to our first point. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. 
Why does Solomon tell us to guard our steps? Why do you think? Probably because we are easily diverted from the path to the presence of God, aren't we? You see, when the worship of God with the people of God is not a settled fact or a fixed point in your life, it becomes easy to find something else to do, doesn't it? We live in a day where we have to constantly juggle priorities. We can't be everywhere at all times. We can't do everything we might want to do, so we, we have to prioritize things. There are certain things we prioritize over others every day. We have items at the top of that list, and other things fall under, and we try to fit them in around the most important things. But until the worship of God with the people of God becomes a settled, fixed point in our lives, we can always find a reason to skip. Instead of waking up and saying, I'm going to go with the people of God to meet with Him, we will wake up and we'll say, I could do that, but I wonder what else I could do today. It's not a fixed point for some of us. Friends, I encourage you today, make the gathering with the people of God for the worship of God a fixed point point in your life. Don't try to fit it in around other things. It's a priority. We need it. Don't neglect meeting together. But guarding our steps doesn't just mean that we get distracted. It also means that we're to watch the conduct of our life. This becomes clear when we read the rest of the verse. To draw near to listen, Solomon says, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Why was the fool's sacrifice evil? Because the one providing it had no desire to be changed by God. They loved the darkness rather than the light. Yes, they were bringing sacrifices, but they had no intention of changing their behavior. They had no intention of actually receiving forgiveness for sin. Proverbs 15.8 says, The Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked, but the prayer of the upright pleases him. Samuel says to Saul, after he makes um, an improper sacrifice, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. So friends, this truth ought to cause us to take a serious look at our own worship. God hates false, foolish worship. Yes, we don't worship in a temple anymore. We don't offer sacrifices, but those things were never the point anyway. The point in all of those was to point the worshiper to the holiness of God, the seriousness of our sin, and the incredible grace that is given to us and the forgiveness and restoration that God offers but when the religious exercise simply becomes an empty form, then it has become evil in the eyes of God. He detests it because what he wants is your heart. So number one, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And number two, the fool, foolish worship, the fool speaks rash words. 
the fool speaks rash words. Look at verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. Rash words. Rash means displaying a lack of careful consideration of the consequences of our actions. How often do we speak rash words when we come to worship the Lord? Isaiah 29 says, This people, they draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. So again, we see that what God wants in our worship is our hearts. It's not that our words or actions don't matter. They do. But the posture of our heart is what adorns our words and actions in worship. It is possible to say all the right things and perform all the right actions, to pray the prayers and to sing the songs and yet not have a true love for God. Friends, this, we are in danger of this. Like I said, if we do this week in and week out, it becomes so easy. I'm telling you, I was, uh, I was on, on part-time staff as, as a pastor for about 10 years, and it becomes so easy to become a professional Christian. You just show up. You say the, you say the words. You sing the songs. I was a worship leader for years. And never be changed. Because the fear of the Lord has been stripped from the actions. Jesus speaks about the same concept when it comes to prayer in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Solomon tells us to let our words be few, and a fool's voice comes with many words. See, the foolish person is quick to speak and slow to listen. Have you ever known someone like this? Aren't we all like this at times? Quick to speak? Someone who just can't close their mouth long enough to hear what someone else is saying? They can't even get their, finished, their sentence finished before, yeah, but what about this, right? Got to get that word in there. Someone who tries to dominate every conversation. Have you ever spoken with a con artist? I have. Someone who makes their living lying about who they are or trying to control the actions of others. See, many times they do this through incessant talking. You cannot get a word in. They just keep going and going. It even doesn't make any sense. It doesn't matter. They, just, they cannot let you speak because they want to control and dominate the conversation. They wear people down with unnecessary chatter to make themselves maybe feel, feel, uh, appear intellectual or in control. They do this to try to gain trust and manipulate people into doing what they want them to do. This is what the fool does when he comes to worship God. He thinks he will be heard for his many words. He thinks he can coerce God into doing what he wants. Solomon reminds us that when we come to worship God, the posture he is looking for is one of quiet submission and humility. Let your words be few, friends. 
As James says, be slow to speak and quick to listen. After all, God resides in heaven, and he's the one who is speaking. Number three, the fool makes promises he doesn't intend to keep. The fool makes promises he doesn't intend to keep. Look at verse four. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you owe. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Don't try to go back and take it back. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? So again, Solomon is concerned with the words that we speak in worship. Now, we might not think we make vows to God. Maybe that seems to us like an Old Testament practice that we don't really do anymore. But is it? How many times have you sat under the weight of conviction, maybe, and told God that you were done, that you were going to make a change? Lord, I'm done with this lifestyle. I'm done with this sin. And yet, you failed to follow through. Have you promised to give your whole self to God and yet have held something back? Have you promised to give of your resources like time or money or energy to the service of God and yet have become stingy with those things? You see, Solomon tells us it is better that we not even make the vow than to make it and leave it unfulfilled. What about bargaining? Have you ever tried to bargain with God? God, if you do this, then I promise I'll do that right? Just get me through this test. Lord, I promise I'll study more next time, right? Just get me through it, Lord. Give me a B. D's get degrees. That's what I was always taught. Just get me through it. You just heal me of this sickness. I promise I'll read the Bible every day. I promise I'll get back to church. I promise I'll do whatever. We may not, we may not say those things explicitly, but I know we have those thoughts and those feelings, right? Lord, it just, it just got to get through this time, and then I'll really be devoted to you. But friends, these kinds of words don't come from a genuine love and reverence for God. They are an attempt to manipulate him into doing what we want. And what about the songs we sing? Do we make vows in the songs that we sing? I think we do sometimes. Now, I actually went back and I looked at a lot of the songs that we sing here, and I didn't find a lot of this, which is really good, really good. <laughs> we sing good songs here. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Eric. I trained them. I taught them all they know. Um, <laughs> that's not true. Um, but what about this one? This is the closest I could find in my short research. This is from the, the, the Goodness of God, the song, The Goodness of God. I like this song. Uh, I will sing of the goodness of God, right? From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head, I will sing of the goodness of God. You will? Really? Is that a vow? I don't know if it's really, like, you could probably make the argument it's probably not a vow, but it is really close, right? I mean, if you're going to say that from the moment that you wake up until you lay your head, you're going to sing of the goodness of God. 
That sounds dangerously close to a vow. And how many of these kinds of lines do we sing in our worship songs? This is, this is actually part of the danger of modern worship songs, not the ones we sing here. We sing great songs here, God-centered songs. I'm serious. They're great. They're so good. Uh, I, I love it. Songs that, that, that focus on Him and exalt Him and don't point to ourselves and what we're going to do. But other songs, they tend to put words in our mouths about what we're going to do and how we are going to feel rather than exalting God for his character and his work. So now we have churches full of people who are either mouthing vows to God that they don't mean, or they really do mean the words when they say them, but they have no idea how to actually fulfill them. And they quickly forget them. So friends, all I'm saying is, be careful what you sing. Be careful what you sing. Gathering together as the people of God is meant to be a glorious, joyful celebration, but it is not meant to be taken lightly. But what does that mean? That brings us to our last point. We've seen what the, what the fool does when he enters into the worship of God, but true worship comes from the fear of the Lord. True worship comes from the fear of the Lord. Look in verse 7. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. God is the one you must fear. What Solomon is saying is that the reason we don't guard our steps, the reason we speak rashly, and the reason we don't pay our vows is because we don't adequately fear the one we say we worship. This is not a fear of terror, right? A fear of punishment. It's a fear of admiration or reverence. This is what theologians have often referred to as filial fear. The fear of a son for his father, if that father is a good father. It's not a slavish fear, the fear of a slave for his master. It's a fear of a son for his father. The fear of the Lord is a reverent fear. It's a fear that says, why would I want to disobey a father who loves me like this father does? Our fear of God, friends, is directly tied to what we believe about who he is and what he has done. Our fear of God is directly tied to what we believe about who he is and what he has done. We see this in one verse of our passage today. Look again at verse 2. Notice what Solomon does. He says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Why? For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Notice the reason Solomon gives for why we should not speak rash words. Because God is in heaven, we are on earth. This is Solomon's way of saying, who do you think you are? Don't you know who you're talking to? Your parents ever say that to you? <laughs> Excuse me? Did you forget who you were talking to? It's as if Solomon is saying, this is God you are talking to. This is the creator of the universe. Do you not recognize his power, his holiness, his glorious beauty, his immensity, his fullness, his divine nature? He is in heaven ruling and reigning over every molecule and you are on earth 
There is an infinite chasm between you and God that you cannot span. You will never get there. So why don't you just close your mouth for a moment and listen what he has to say? Friends, do you know this God today? Is he your father? Do you fear him as a son fears a good dad and longs to please him? This is a great reminder to us today of our desperate need for good theology. I say this without apology. We need good theology, friends. Perhaps the reason we don't take worship seriously is because we really don't know who we're here to worship. Have we forgotten or perhaps never learned about the nature and the character of our Father? Oh, how good it is for my soul. The reason many people treat the worship of God with such a lack of respect, maybe, is because their view of God is very, very small. Maybe God has become someone who is like us. He's domesticated rather than divine. We think of him more like a creature rather than our creator. He's a buddy rather than the blessed one, the holy one. See, these low, small views of God have led to a lack of theological depth and spiritual seriousness that Scripture calls us to. So again, I ask, have you forgotten who it is you are here to worship? Do you know the God of the Scriptures? Or have you fashioned a God of your own imagination who is much like you, so much like you, that you are no longer moved by Him? Have we forgotten that God has always existed, friends. God has had no beginning. There was never a time when God did not exist because he exists outside of time. There was a time when you did not exist and you did nothing to bring about your existence. God will never not exist. Can we even even fathom such a being? Have we forgotten that God is creator and sustainer of all things? He is the first cause, the first mover. Nothing exists except that which God called into existence and God called into existence all that there is from nothing. That's his power and his glory, friends. We can't even begin to imagine what that kind of power is. Have we forgotten that God is holy and completely righteous in all that he does? God cannot sin. There is no imperfection in him. All that he does is right and true because he is the ultimate standard of all that is right and true. There is no blemish in his character or his actions. Have we forgotten that God is completely free and sovereign over everything and everyone that exists? He cannot be manipulated, friends. He is free to create and destroy whatever and whomever he wishes for his own purposes. He owes no one anything good. Have we forgotten that every single one of us is deserving of eternal punishment in a real physical place called hell because of our rebellion against this holy God? And have we forgotten that God, even though all these things are true, has chosen to leave heaven and descend under the sun 
in the person of Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and you're wondering, how do I really know this God? I want to know him. I want to fear him as he calls me to, but I don't know how. Friends, you're in good company today. If you feel like all your efforts are empty and your love for God is weak and fickle and you don't know what to do, listen to Psalm 130, two verses. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? The answer, nobody. We're all guilty. But with you, there is forgiveness so that you may be feared. Friends, this is the turn right here. You see, God's forgiveness is meant to lead us to fear him, not his judgment. Not his anger or disappointment. No, friends, today your sins can be forgiven. What kind of a holy, righteous, just God can do that? His forgiveness is what leads us to fear. John Bunyan says it this way. Oh, that a great God should be a good God. A good God to an unworthy people, to an undeserving people, and to a people that continually do what they can to provoke the eyes of his glory. This should make us tremble. Church, if we want to develop a healthy fear of the Lord, then let us meditate and marvel at the love he has shown us today. He is not a distant, cold, stoic father. No, he is looking for a people to worship him in spirit and in truth. And he longs to bring us near to him through the finished work of Jesus. You see, Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness on your behalf. Our half-hearted worship, our coldness toward him can be forgiven. And the record of wrongs can be wiped away because Jesus has paid for those sins at the cross, friends. And when we turn from sin and trust in his work, we are united with him and brought into a right relationship with the Father. And that, friends, is what it means to be a Christian, to be united with Christ. I invite you today, if this is the first time you are hearing this, this is the gospel, this is the good news, this is how we are made right with God. If you want to guard your steps, don't speak rash words and pay your vows, but above all, remember who dwells in our midst today. He is here among us, church. He dwells with us by his spirit. He longs to bless us and build us up as we exalt his son. So friends, how we come to worship God really matters. It does. How we come to this gathering week after week really matters. And because of Jesus, we can boldly approach the throne of grace and find help in our time of need. And when we are united with him, we can sing the songs, we can pray the prayers, we can kneel on our knees, we can lift our hands, we can perform all of our worship with a heart that truly fears our holy and gracious God. Please pray with me.
Father, we long to know you. I pray for those in this room, Lord, who maybe for the first time are hearing that they can receive forgiveness of sin. Lord, I pray that you would continue to press that on their hearts. I pray that they would not be able to leave this place comfortable until, Lord, they turn to you in faith. I pray that Christ would be on our minds, on our hearts now as we sing, because without him, we have no hope of worshiping you right. Father, we are so thankful that Christ has fulfilled all righteousness for us, and even our half-hearted worship, even though we have failed over and over to love you with all of our hearts, we look to Jesus today. He has fulfilled all righteousness for us. We are clothed with his righteousness, and our filthy rags are cast on him. We are so thankful, God. Thank you that you are such a father. And may this cause us to fear you the way that we should and to worship you the way that you call us to. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to enter into a time of response. We do this each week. We hear from God's word. We hear what he has to say to us. First, we reflect. Is there something you've heard today? Maybe today is the first time you've ever heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whatever it is that the Lord is speaking to you through his word today, reflect on that. Don't don't just suppress it. Don't just move on to the next thing and start thinking about what's coming next. Really reflect on what the Holy Spirit is laying on your heart this morning. And we're going to remember. We have a time of remembrance We call this the Lord's Supper. We have baskets up here and baskets in the back with wafer and some juice. And this is what the Scripture calls us to as believers, to regularly observe the Lord's Supper. Because when we do that, what we are saying is we are partaking of the body and the blood of Jesus. We are remembering the body that was broken for us and the blood that was shed on our behalf. So we're going to spend some time doing that. And then we're going to rehearse. What we mean by rehearse is we're going to sing because there's going to come a day, friends. We are going to be before the throne of God, singing for all eternity, worshiping him in spirit and in truth and as new creatures under the sun. And it's going to be amazing. And so we're, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to rehearse for that time. So now join me as we enter a time of just silent reflection. And when you're ready, come forward or go to the back to observe the Lord's Supper. Thank you.